Blind history has spanned centuries of incredible people and events. We've marveled at the heroic efforts of titans and could scarcely believe the evil of some of history's villains. But, good or bad, they've all helped shape the world in which we live. And someone who also helped us bring these stories to you is Simon Seabag Montefiore, an award-winning author, academic and historian, whose writings not only provided research material for some of our episodes, but whose love of history is an inspiration to me and my Blind History co-host, Anthony Midera. Well, I'm very excited to welcome to Blind History in this special edition. It's really a, a bonus episode and something that uh, even we hadn't hoped was possible at the very beginning, despite our most optimistic efforts. Dr. Simon Seabag Montefiore, who is a historian, he's a best-selling author, he's one of the most widely read historians and novelists in the world today. He has had books published in 48 languages. He's won prizes for both his history and his novels. And he regularly lectures around the world on history, particularly Russia and the Middle East, and on subjects such as leadership and revolution. He read history at uh, Gonville and Caius College, which is at Cambridge University, where he received his doctorate in philosophy. And he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a visiting professor of humanities at the University of Buckingham. He's also the author of a children's series, which you wrote with your wife, didn't you, Simon? I did, yeah, which was a lot of fun. It's called Royal Rabbits of London. So that's uh, just one of the interesting things among it, an enormous and innumerable list of them. Anthony Medera, my co-host for Blind History is here. Ant, I know you're as excited as I am about interviewing Simon. Yeah, 100%. This is, a, this is a great honor for me. I've got all your books, all your nonfiction books. Uh, I don't believe I've got Royal Rabbits, though. <laughs> so maybe I'm, I, I need to get them. I'm not going to say you're too grown up for that. <laughs> but my kids will love it, definitely. Simon, it started with Titans of History for me, right. which was the introduction. And, you know, that, that got me, I've always loved history, but this really got me, you know, the way you write, the easiness of reading, it reads like a novel. It's next to my bed. I read that book over and over again. And from there, I mean, we just expanded into all, all the other books. And I think both Gareth and I have recently read Jerusalem, the biography. And I mean, that blew me away. And because it had so much other history feeding into it, right. Alexander the Great, the Maccabees, all of those incredible individuals that shaped history. So it's really incredible. Thank you. I really enjoy it. Thank you. I mean, it was really, um, that is actually one of my favorite books because, you know, Jerusalem, it was su it's such a hard thing to write about for the reasons that you say that, um, that, you know, it's just, I mean, the history of Jerusalem is a history of the world, basically. And also it's so kind of, it's so little known, really, like all his, like, you know, we just know in, in history, I find that we just know little nodules very well. And the rest of it, we don't know much about. And of course, every now and then a bit of history becomes an, an, a sort of international obsession and part of the zeitgeist and everyone studies it. Like, for example, um, after 9-11, everyone suddenly studied the life of Muhammad, you know, for example, and everyone was obsessed by it and everyone published books about it. And history at times like that is very political and very polemical. And again, we're in another period like that now with Black Lives Matter, where everyone's obsessed with the history of slavery and particularly British slavery and American slavery. And there's a danger with these things that, you know, the obsession with one bit of history, one ignores all the rest of it. But I, I like these periods when people are fascinated by the history 
you know, of, of a particular period because it takes us to new periods, that new places, new periods, new subjects that people thought they knew about and actually don't. Mm. And, and, and I like to think that Jerusalem is full of those kind of, it's actually got many of those periods within it. It's got the Crusades, it's got the creation of Israel, it's got Jesus and Herod the Great, uh, it's got King David. It's got, it actually has a lot of these periods that people, little bits that people think are familiar, but they don't know how they link together. And that's what I try to do in, in Jerusalem. I agree with, with Anthony that that book has been absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm still, fortunately for me, I still have the, the joy of, of hitting the last quarter of it over the course of the next few nights. But Simon, if we can speak quite generally about history, because there is a, there is a part of me that thinks that it's quite unfortunate that history is taught the way that it is. And that these curricula that are decided by national departments of education leave out so much. And obviously, you have to be reasonable about this. First of all, there are only so many people who actually are interested in studying history, uh, which is more as the pity from, from that point of view. But history in general is probably, and I remember thinking this when I was at school, it's the only subject that you do at school that actually teaches you about people, that and literature, really. What are your views on the way history is taught? And how we could make history more interesting to people, because I do believe that there's a paucity of interest and of, of knowledge uh, and a general ignorance, which I think we all are, are much poorer for. Well, if I was really if I was really being honest, I would I would say if I had my way completely outside all politics, I would say that everyone should study all history except their own, because, you know, because the trouble with our curriculum is that they're, they're organized by politicians to promote our own countries and to promote the myth of our own countries. And you know that in South Africa. There was an old history and now there's a new history. Both are valid. Both are essential. But actually, um, but actually it would have been much better to study the rest, of Afri- you know, the rest of African history or the rest of Asian history or South American history for people in South Africa. And similarly, for in Britain, you know, we were taught such a sort of narrow version of history. You know, it was like Lord Nelson, King Henry VIII, Lord Nelson. And when it was slavery, it was just... It was just the fact that we abolished slavery brilliantly and then World War Two, And that's about it. <laughs> and, you know, well, actually, I mean, so much of it, so we're missing, we must, was missing so much from that. I mean, not just African history, but, you know, Persia and China and Japan and Simon Bolivar and all these fascinating things, you know. Correct. So I do think that it should be bigger and it should be wider and it should, one's own history should be banned. I'm being slightly <laughs> joking. I'm slightly joking, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Your interest is varied. I mean, you, you've taken an interest in so many and you've just indicated that now in answering that question. So many parts of, of, of human history and the ancient world and, and the more modern world, and, and it spans all of that and some very peculiar and arcane areas of history too. But without a doubt, your I suppose your signal achievement has been to chronicle in, in great detail, not only the life of Stalin, where you started at the end and then eventually wrote The Young Stalin, as I understand it, but also your interest in Russia, which seems to me to, to be extraordinary and, and very detailed and quite all-consuming some of the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I always was fascinated about Russia. And when I was, my, my mother's family, we're a Jewish family, and my mother's family came from Russia. And really quite, re- I mean, you know, uh, um, just over 100 years ago. So they, they came in the 20th century. And so, you know, we're, they were sort of real immigrants in England, which made them part of a particular sort of species anyway. But they became very English and Anglophile and proud to be English and all that sort of thing and very English in many ways. But anyway, the point was that I was always fascinated with Russia because of them. 
And because of that, that led me to, after I was a banker, uh, which was an unlikely career, I, I became a war correspondent. And I went out to all the wars in the Soviet Union in the, in the 90s. And that was just, I mean, having come from a sort of rather comfortable boarding school kind of life, I went out to, you know, especially the Caucasus in the early 90s. I was in Chechnya and Georgia and, and the Karabakh, where there's a war. The second, I was in the first Karabakh war, where there's now another war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So I was in all those places and I was seeing history being made. I was with Shevard Nadzi. I flew, you know, I flew with him to the Kremlin. And so I already wanted, I felt I was seeing history being made. I was seeing an empire falling. And then I wanted to, I wanted to move into Russian history because I realized that journalism has a short life while writing these history books, you know, has a much longer life. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to write about Catherine the Great and Potemkin, Prince Potemkin. And that was my first history book. And it's, well, it's my favorite history book in the sense because it, it was my first love. And because Catherine the Great is such a delicious character and Prince Potemkin, her lover and partner and prime minister, both of them are such brilliant. I mean, I, I literally mean brilliant in terms of their, mm. I mean, first of all, they were kind of, you know, they were incredibly extravagant. Everything was, everything was um, ex extravagant, palatial, over-the-top, flamboyant. But also they were intellectually so talented, both of them, and such a great team and it's such an unusual thing. So that was my first um, Russian book. And then after that, I did Stalin. And I was very lucky with Stalin, as you, as you said, because um, when I arrived there, Putin had just come to power and he approved. He read the, the Catherine Potemkin book weirdly. He's not a great reader by all accounts, but he read that. And he said that give this person access to the um, to the archives, which were just opening. And so I was one, I was one of the first people to have access to all Stalin archives in a very privileged way. And that was amazing. And the young Stalin, I mean, if you ever had a chance to interview him, would you, what would you say to him? You know, if you, the young Stalin, I'm saying. Well, I mean, I just talked to him about, I mean, there's so much I'd like to talk to him about. I mean, I'd like to talk to him about God for a start, because he was very interested in God. I mean, he was trained as a priest. And yeah. um, I'd want to talk to him about the bank robberies. And I'd want to talk to him about his relationship with Lenin. And I'd want to ask him if it was true that, Really, his kind of happiest times were uh, when he was in exile in Siberia, when he was, you know, when he was youngish in his 30s. So I'd, I'd want to ask him about a lot of assassinations. And of course, I'd want to ask him about what it was like to work for the Rothschilds, which he did. <laughs> an, unlikely, <laughs> an unlikely coupling, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, I really loved writing that book. And I'd spent a lot of time in, in Georgia and, I, and Baku as well, which is where the, most of that book takes place, as, as you know. And What's exciting is that they're now making a film of this, but it's going to be in Georgian language, um, weirdly. But that's going to be a lot of fun. So exciting, exciting times. You know, you point out the, the film, and, and I think all of your books have been optioned at this point. Um, Hollywood's always looking for good stories. And uh, undoubtedly, this, this is one of the means, the best means for people to learn about history. And, you know, there are these extremely rich and beautiful stories that are now put into technicolor and, and into languages like Georgian, which they might never have before. And this must be very satisfying for you too, because it means that your work can be translated as it were from the page into, into something on the screen. And that must be both scary because it's your baby and quite gratifying. Yeah. I mean, 
they've all been optioned, including my novels, but that, you know, but none of them have been made yet. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very frustrating, I mean, some of them have been optioned for 15 years by different people. So actually it's quite frustrating, but I like it because, you know, all the writing is done on your own. It's a solitary life. You know, I'm sitting in my office mm. for hours on end. And so I love meetings, you know, so I often have meetings, you know, with, with these teams from these movie production companies from Hollywood, which is a lot of fun, actually. So I like that, you know, if only because I see some actually real people, um, you know, and talk to normal and talk to real people, which is quite exciting for a lone writer who never goes out, <laughs> you know, but it's so satisfactory. But you know, it's just one way that you can, I mean, another way is through documentaries. Another way is through conversations like this. I love, you know, podcasts and, you know, I'm very pleased to be on your, on your show. It's a very nice way to sort of, to, to reach new audiences and to talk directly to people. Thank you. I mean, we've had a lot of fun doing it. We've also spent a fair amount of time on Russia, but um, we've tried to also bring in varying, you know, stories from all over the world. And, and we've paid some attention, obviously, to local stories, too. We've covered uh, Jan Smuts and Shaka Zulu and, and Pixli Kaisaka Seme and Paul Kruger, among others. But uh, it, your interest in South Africa and in African history, is there, is there any, um, any project that you've sort of put on hold or that you've had in the back of your mind for a long time regarding our part of the world? Yeah, there's a, there's a secret project. So I never like talking about them until they're kind of, you know, done, really. Um, but there is a big secret project that has a lot of Africa in it. And I love African history. And I love South African history. And I've been in South Africa a lot. And I love the country. But I'm fascinated by the history, the conflicts, the, the rivalries, the diamonds, the gold. Um, and, and, you know, it's just, a, it's just a gripping story. But also I love West African and East African. I mean, I love African history. And I've also spent a lot of time in North Africa. And my family, the Seabags, are actually Moroccan. So we're sort of, we're sort of Africans, um, if you like. Yeah, I just wanted to ask quickly, you know, to bring your great uncle into this. I mean, it's, uh, I read a lot about, obviously, he was a very important part of, of Jerusalem, the biography. And, you know, when you, when you see his name coming up, and then I went, to the back of the book, and then I then I look, and then I then I start doing research. Is yeah. this a link? It must be a link. And then I ask Gareth, and then he said, "Well, why don't you ask him?" So, so yeah, yeah well, hear about well, that. You're right. Um, Moses Montefiore is is in is in the Jerusalem book because he was the founder of modern Jerusalem. Interesting in 1860, and he was a big Victorian era British tycoon, basically, who was partners with the Rothschilds, and in the 1820s, he started going to Jerusalem, which was then a complete ruin. And gradually, he made a great fortune himself. And then he started to build a new city around the old city walls in the 1860s. And um, he's a fascinating character because he's a bit like Zelig in the 19th century. You know, he's, he appears everywhere, everywhere, you, anywhere you write, you know. And if you write the history of Egypt, he, he appears in Egypt, you know, he's in Jerusalem. He's in Russia, in my Romanov's book. You know, he goes and sees two czars. So he's in that book too. So I regard it as slightly. I mean, I'm I'm not at all solemn about my own family history, which I, which I'm kind of amused by the fact that he appears in these books. So it's a bit of an in joke with me, just to sort of just putting him in. But he's everywhere, you know. But he's a very interesting character. Um, when we were growing up, because he was a sort of founder of the family. I mean, he was actually an Italian immigrant. He was born in Italy and he came to England, made his fortune. So he was the classic sort of. There isn't a 
an, a British dream equivalent of the American dream. But actually, you know, people did come to England and make it big um, from foreign countries, outsiders. And he was one of those people, you know, an Italian Jew from Tuscany who came mm. to England and ended up as friends with Queen Victoria, partners with the Rothschilds, brother-in-law of the Rothschilds, sure. friends with Disraeli and everybody else, mm. and, and Palmerston and Peel and everybody. So he was a very interesting character, but we were brought up that he was a kind of family saint. And we were very bored of him as children, you know, in our family Passovers and that sort of thing. We were <laughs> always sort of, we were sick of some, we used to call him Samo. And, and then more recently, fascinatingly, it's been revealed that he was actually an extremely scandalous figure. Oh, really? He'd had, at the age of 81, he'd had a child by, by a 16-year-old housemaid, which <laughs> caused absolute shock in the family when it was revealed. And because um, if you think about it, that, that's the most outrageous. Let's not even analyse how that could have possibly worked. But, you know, it, it happened. And, um, you know, it, it's just one of, those, one of those weird things. But somehow it happened. So he was actually just... Like all Victorian magnates, he had a sort of secret life. What more can one say? Colourful as well. <laughs> Colourful. Disreputable a bit. I and mean, he was a sort of saintly character. Like all Victorians, you know, he was sort of saintly character. And yet, obviously, there was a lot of stuff going on that shouldn't have been, which would probably be regarded as, you know, quite disreputable now. There's quite a lot, I think, that the three of us would have in common. I have dreams about being in a time machine. And I, I, I mean, to me, this would be heaven. If there is a heaven, the heaven I want to go to is the one where I can actually just hop in something and, and go backwards and forwards in time and be able to see those great events of history. And when I stretch my imagination to its absolute limits, it's when I'm imagining flying over the Battle of Gargamela and seeing you know, Alexander and the Macedonians against the Persians or, or being there at the moment when Caesar is stabbed in the in the theater of Pompey and those kinds of things. What, what are, what are the, the, the moments if you could, I mean, this is a fantasy trip for all of us, but if you could go back for either of you, what would be the things you'd most want to see? I think the deathbed of Alexander the Great's got to be, wow. you know, when he's dying, the ruler of the sort of known world and he's, you know, what did he say? What did he die? Was he poisoned? You know, I think there's some, I think deathbeds are a good place to be. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because, because deathbeds aren't just, especially of great men, deathbeds aren't just about, they're not just a fact, you know, private deathbeds are about family tragedy and, tra- and they're, even they are fascinating. But the deathbeds of great rulers, great warlords, that's particularly fascinating, isn't it? Because there's a political angle. There's, there's one group of people who are being destroyed. There's one group of people who are arriving in power. There's one group who are struggling to hold on to power. There's another group who are conspiring to destroy the people who are about to seize power. I mean, you know, there's so much going on. So I think the deathbeds of sort of Louis XIV, Alexander the Great, Nadir Shah, you know, um, Darius the Great, you know, or, one, or, or Mao Zedong, there's another one. You know, or Stalin. You know, these are all, I think, let's do the deathbeds. Let's do the deathbeds. Oh, that would be superb. Uh, you know, there are so many of those those deathbeds that that there are, the whole books have been written just about them. I mean, I, I read the most unbelievable book, which I think they turned into a French movie because I remember watching subtitles about Louis the Fourteenth uh, lying in, you know, with gangrene and and all this this. It was very very sad and quite depressing to imagine that the man who had the imagination to build Versailles um, and, and had such an aesthetic 
uh, I for everything had to die in such an, an ignominious way. <laughs> it's kind of upsetting. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the deathbeds are a very good way to see how power works. You know, I, my books are really all about, they're all about how power works. And I'm always interested in the mechanics of power, the, the fluidity of it, the way that, you know, it isn't always the position that someone has. It, it's just, it's oftentimes their link, the fidelity people have to them. And when I write these books, I always just try and find out when I'm looking at these great leaders, whether it's the Smuts or Mandela. Question is, who did you go to if you needed to speak to them? Who was the person that could deliver a meeting to Henry VIII or, you know, or Stalin? Who was it? Where did you? Because that's the definition. That's one definition of power. That is the key person you had to go to. And so how did you get to see them? How did it work? How did you finesse that? So all my books are sort of about that. Lenin always put it as who whom. Who controls who? Mm. That's a great question of all politics. What I wanted to just touch on, this is related to what you, you've been saying now, is that if we look at all these individuals, and I think the, the connection with a lot of us is the power, and that's what makes it so good to read. But, but also the way you've put the, the books forward and the subjects forward to make it so, it's so easy to read, I mean, it must be very, very difficult for you in terms of research to be able to put all of this together. There's so many complexities. If you look at Jerusalem, there's such intenseness in terms of Stalin. It's crazy. I don't know. How long does it take to write these books? And I mean, the, the, the research and, and then starting to put it together into condense it into, into a book. It is. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, I really, um, with my books, I first of all try and make sure that the history is absolutely right. Like scholastic, you know, in a scholarly sense and with the right sources and the right and get the story right. What really happened? Not what's repeated in all the other history books. Because a lot of history books are just people reading other history books and repeating it. No, I try and start again from the original sources. And I write for about a year, I just collect, or two years, um, I just read, do the research. And I take notes on little cards, actually. It's a very old-fashioned way of doing it. But it's the only way that you can do multi-referencing. Because so often people, historians, they just take one event, one source, and that can only go in one place. But I, I look upon it as like, okay, this is evidence. This, is in, this shows their relationship to women. This shows their attitude to military policy. This shows their academic relation, I mean, their, their diplomatic relationship with Germany. And this also shows the type of shoes they wear. So this, I would put that in four different <laughs> sections. And so I would use it in all four places. But then when I've done that, I start to write. And I write in a gallop the whole book in one without even really doing chapters or, you know, anything. And once I've done that and it's all in the right place, then I rewrite the whole book. And I really work hard to make sure that it's beautifully written. It's written with style, with class, and that also that it's, it's, it's readable by anybody. So those are my kind of three aims. I'm not saying I succeed mm. at any of these things. I mean, I try and get, I, I try and get the scholarship right and I always get, the books read by the, the greatest scholars of, the, of, the, of the, the period I'm writing about so that I have someone else checking my views. But I do have a good sort of nose for what, how things really, how things work. And then beautiful writing. Well, I mean, I just, I want the books to be well written, you know, and I do my best to do that. And thirdly, you know, I used to say with my mother, my mother died a year ago, actually, but she, I used to get her to read the books and if she could read them. I used to say like, well, she's my reader because she's not a sort of scholarly person at all. She was just an ordinary reader. And my wife, Santa, is now my ordinary reader. 
<laughs> she, she reads them, then uh, that, that's good. So I really try, I sweat blood actually to get those last two things right. You know, to, to get them, you know, so the sentences are good and the writing is good and that they are, they are accessible to everybody. You don't have to know anything about the Romanos, Jerusalem, Stalin to read these books. And that's my, that's my aim. Simon, do, do you have to work hard to resist the temptation to mythologize people and to include stuff which is hearsay or embellishment? Because you mentioned just now going back to the original sources. And in, in Jerusalem, for example, you quote Herodotus quite often. And there are many other writers of the period who, whom you reference directly. But there's also stuff that is colorful and interesting and may or may not be true. And sometimes you, you know, sort of Put it in as a side story, as, as a, a bit of a tangential footnote, perhaps. Yeah, I normally, um, I get what you're saying. People often ask me in my books, they say, like, it reads like a novel. How much is it made up? How much is, you know, is the sum made up? Did you kind of, and actually, I really don't with these books. I, let me give you an example. When I'm writing about Stalin in the Stalin books, people said to me, um, that, and there's conversation between people. And so my sort of, my critics were thrilled to see this. They said, like, he's made it up. He's made up conversation. How could he possibly know the conversation? And I was really pleased that they did this because, in fact, these conversations were from the Central Committee meeting. So mm. there, there, was actually, there was actually a typist typing the discussions. So, in fact, they weren't remotely made up, you know. And so that's, that's basically the truth. I mean, I don't put in things that I think are totally made up or totally mythology. And, in fact, normally I... I'm criticizing the myth. The myth, you know, I'm normally sort of I, I try and expose the myth. But if it's something that I, you know, that is possibly true, but not doesn't, I, I say so. But otherwise, they, you know, they really aren't. Nothing is made up, and just because they're written well, as I try to make them, um, it doesn't. It, it doesn't mean that they're made. And even the sort of, I mean, Herodotus, for example, and other historians in the early part of, uh, in the early part of, of Jerusalem. I mean, Herodotus or Josephus, for example, are pretty brilliant historians. I mean, you know, they really, I mean, Josephus, for example, was really the, the greatest war correspondent of all time. But also, you know, he's up there with the greatest historians. But you do, you reference the Bible quite often. And this is where I suppose it gets a little muddy, because for some people, this is a book of absolute literal truth. But for a historian, obviously, you have a different standard. And you don't want to get to the point where you, you have to rely on you know, the kind of evidence that would, would win you a case in court. But you also right. have to pay respect to the mythology because there must be something in it that's kept it alive for that long. David and Solomon, for example, it's very hard to find any other circumstantial evidence uh, around their existence. But it's undoubtedly something which, which happened. Perhaps they exaggerated the size of the kingdom and that kind of thing. But these are interesting people, nonetheless, that are noteworthy and, and deserve their place in history. Definitely. And I think, I think the Bible is a good example. I mean, I just treat the Bible as a, as a library of books written by different people at different times that has some, uh, uh, some truth in it, some mythology, and some that's a mixture of both. And that we try and, we try to, to, um, compare and contrast with archaeology and, and other historians. So that's how I treat it. But, you know, when you're writing about, um, when you're writing about the Bible, I mean, obviously, you're on, you know, people, well, when you get to Jerusalem, people are killed for the mythology. So I wrote this book very carefully. Let me put it like that. 
It's also depending on whose side you're on, I suppose. Um, often, especially a long, long time ago, the history, it's, it's, the information is often the, what's written. It's about Julius Caesar and his Gallic Wars. I mean, he wrote a lot of that information. So I suppose that's quite difficult to disseminate and to try to get a, a version out. You know, as, well, as, well, it's funny you should say that, but I mean, the hardest bit to write in Jerusalem was the modern bit. You know, when there's a, there's, you'd have thought that there's no discussion about what, what, what actually happened. But the fact is, uh, that, you know, the creation of the state of Israel, the 20th century of Jerusalem is the most kind of fraught bit of the whole, the whole story. And actually with all of this, I mean, I, I, as we said earlier, I mean, I come from a Jewish family and I, with, with links to Zionism, with links to Israel. But I decided when I wrote this book to approach it completely in a detached manner and to try and write a book that is as neutral as is possible in Jerusalem, I mean, impossible completely. And I also decided to treat, to really look, research the, the, the history of the great Palestinian Arab families, which you know, many, many books have been written about, and they've been completely, they haven't been followed in, in complete detail. So in this book, you'll find material about, you know, the Palestinians that isn't in most books, most pro-Palestinian books, but it is in this book. Mm. I, ma- I made it my business to meet someone from every one of those great notable families, as they were called. I, I thought the treatment of the early Islamic rulers of Jerusalem was extraordinary because these were people I didn't know very much about at all. And you enlightened me in ways that I hadn't been enlightened either into the, 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 the ways of early Islam or into the extraordinarily complex characters that these these great rulers were at a time where Jerusalem was really, you know, it, it was, it was on the precipice as, as it has been pretty much forever. But uh, at that time in particular, how, how extraordinarily open-minded and interesting these people were and not at all the caricature that we are led to believe that the early Islamic rulers were. That's because the late Islamic rulers, you know, changed the history, rewrote the history themselves. And that history was doubled down on in the centuries since. So when you actually go back to the original sources and look at what happened from the 620s onwards, right up until about seven, well, from six, you know, six, 620 to 750, um, you find a completely different, much more cosmopolitan, much more open version of Islam than you expect. They were much more, the caliphs were much more like Caesars. They were sort of emperors, yeah. um, like Roman emperor, Eastern Roman emperors, if, if you like, than they were, you know, the late, late, the later version of fundamentalist, rigorous, severe and austere uh, Islamic rulers. And they're fascinating. I mean, that's the Umayyad dynasty. And you know, people don't know much about them. And they've been very blackened by, by their, their successors, the Abbasids and others later. So I went back and just tried to read, you know, research everything I could about them. And also how Islam, uh, when it started, was so non-exclusive, such encourage a sort of hybridity, recruiting Christians and Jews as well, and allowing them to worship in the same tent, as it were, um, and the, how they called themselves the believers. So all of this is in the book. And then you have the Umayyads, who are this fascinating dynasty, who built the Al-Aqsa and the, um, uh, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. So they, they are very fascinating. And I try to do that also with Saladin and his family and other, and other dynasties too, which, which people just don't know about very well. Simon, I've got so many questions, but I think uh, definitely if people ask you questions, you know, what type of question would you like to be put to you? 
and in relation to your work and what's most the, you're most proud of. So just referring, I mean, the Jerusalem, the biography is an epic, and it's uh, and and as it has, they say in the front, it's ambitious, but it's incredible. So which one of your works are you most proud of? I love my novel, One One Night in Winter. So that's my fiction I'm most proud of, which is a love story set in Stalinist Russia. And it's all about, it's, it's about love, but it's also about power and, and, and repression. And as for the history books, I really am um, proud of Catherine the Great and Potemkin, which is my first big history book, which they hadn't really been covered before together. And so that was a great pleasure. But also, I'm very proud of the Romanovs, which we haven't really talked about, which is the story of all the czars mm. of the Romanov dynasty from 1613 to Nicholas II and Rasputin and all that. And it's the sort of sister book of Jerusalem because I did them one after another. And so I guess those are the, those are the books that I'm sort of I'm very proud of. But, I, but you know, I, I, I sort of love doing all my books. There is so much political weight attached to history. And we've already gone over how people tend to prioritize their own history and they use it to enforce the nation state and to make people more patriotic and for good or for bad reasons. But I, I can't help thinking, and it's something that I feel so strongly about. You know, when I saw the, the Arab uprising uh, in, in the Arab Spring, all I was concerned about, and it, it, it's probably not a very good commentary on my character, but I was more concerned about the, the Egyptian museum than I was about what was going on in the square. Uh, when they blew up the Buddhas of Bamiyan, it wasn't so much that I was anti the Taliban than that I wanted people to protect these artifacts of all human history. When I see statues being toppled, even statues of distasteful and horrible people from history, I can't help but get a pang of deep dissatisfaction and, and concern about the fact that that the people who are doing this are very often the people who have the least interest in history and even the worst parts of our history, probably even more than the good parts need to be remembered. Do you feel when you see some of this going on, the same kind of discomfort that I do? Yeah, I really do feel that. And I do feel that even with despicable characters, the statues should be kept and put in a, put in a park for, for monstrous statues, as it were. I'm not at all sort of um, precious about, moving statues and taking down statues. I mean, in Britain, I don't know if you've been following, we've been having all this huge crisis about, um, you know, what statues to keep up and what to take down. And first of all, I'm all for statues being taken down in a a revolution against Saddam Hussein or Lukashenko or, you know, or, or, or some sort of dictator. I mean, those ones taken down in the frenzy of uprising and freedom, that's a wonderful thing. Let's not be in any doubt about that. As for the rest of statues, I mean, one doesn't have to be precious about them. I mean, most of the statues in London, no one knows who they are. Everyone's forgotten they're even there. And many of them are for people who actually nowadays don't seem very, very admirable at all. I say move them and take them down, but don't destroy them. It's indicative of something a little more concerning. And that is that there are people who want to do what Stalin, who you know, is, a, is a real subject of your writing, yeah. uh, where they're trying to airbrush history, where they're trying almost to... Uh, make history more palatable or to make history anew and to, and to rewrite parts of it. That's obviously of much greater concern than the pulling down of a statue. Yes, I think that is the point. And I think the point is what we're seeing, I, again, I think it's like people trying to impose a, a single orthodox version of, of truth, history, morality, a new sort of religion, a sanctimonious, self-righteous new religion on everybody else. And that's illiberal. And that we, we have to fight that everywhere whether it's from the left or the right, 
the so-called secular world mm. or the religious world. And we have to, we have to fight that because that's, that's the only thing that divides us from real dictatorship. And so we have to be very vigilant about it. And people like us, you know, people in, the, in writing history and studying history and talking are part of that conversation. And we need to be firm when we see it and call it out and not be intimidated. What's the place that you'd most like to visit that you haven't yet been able to visit, purely out of curiosity or perhaps for research purposes? I mean, I still haven't been to Jerusalem and your book has given me such a hunger for it. It's, it's unbelievable. I think Iran is really... All Iran? The great, yeah, there's the, the tomb of Cyrus the Great, the, um, the Great Square in, in Isfahan, all those places. Yeah, that's where I really want to... I mean, it's Persia that I really would love to go to because the great places in Syria have been destroyed in Aleppo, which I'd so wanted to see. But Iran and Iraq are the places that I'd really love to visit, you know, more than anything. A person that you'd wish to cover, wish you'd had covered so far, um, is there an individual that comes to mind? Shaka Zulu is a fascinating character, and I love Zulu history. And obviously, he's very much in the sort of, he's, a, he's in the same ballpark as Stalin, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, a very, but a very fascinating, complex character, obviously. So let's say Shaka Zulu. You ever come here, I'd find all the best people to take you through Zulu Natal, including some Zulu historians who, who do most of their storytelling in the form of song. I would love that. Yes, please. Yeah, with pleasure. Simon, thank you so much. I know Anthony and I are, are, are extraordinarily gratified by the fact that we could spend some time with you. We're, we're both enormous fans of your work. And it's so great to talk to someone who loves history as much as we do. And, and please keep doing the great work that you're doing. May all of your books be turned into multi-million dollar movies. And uh, may you continue to study and to reveal all these great things about history to the rest of us. We're, we're benefactors in an, in an enormous way. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very honored to talk to you. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.